Welcome to This Week in California Education. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, we're just a few days away from the November elections, and uh, EdSource covers education, so we have been focusing quite a bit on the race for the state superintendent of public instruction. Yes, we have. And it's been interesting because the candidates, Marshall Tuck and Tony Thurman, have actually agreed on many of the core issues, but... There have also been some differences, certainly around charter schools, whether to expand them or to put a pause on them, which is what Tony Thurman thinks in terms of expansion in the state. Yes, and the differences that they have have been accentuated by the independent groups that support them, who are wealthy charter school backers for Marshall Tuck and public employee unions led by the California Teachers Association for Tony Thurman. But the most notable aspect of this campaign really has been the amount of money that has gone into it, $50 million. That's both in direct contributions to the campaign and these independent expenditure committees, which have poured in at our last count $50 million. I'm sure that number will rise once the campaign is over and we've added up all the numbers. Marshall Tuck has about a two-to-one spending advantage over Tony Thurman. Well, we're very pleased today to have with us Kevin Gordon, who is the founding partner of Capital Advisors. It's a school consulting firm and and a longtime observer of state education politics. And he, like many of us, has been following the Marshall Tuck Tony Thurman race. Welcome, Kevin Gordon. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. So, Kevin, it's $50 million and counting in this race for state superintendent. Are you surprised at that figure? It really is an eye-popping number, and I am surprised. I anticipated this was going to be a race that would they would be spending millions of dollars to be sure, but $50 million is pretty amazing. When you think about it, voters, in terms of their attention span, almost 2 million voters in the last statewide election, didn't even bother to vote on that item. You know, they voted, but they didn't vote on superintendent public instruction. Because they didn't know who the candidates were, they didn't care, or why didn't people vote? I think it's partly not caring, but partly because when you go down ballot, it's the first race that's a nonpartisan race. So they do their Democrat, Republican, whatever, and they get down to that one, and they just fell off. They said, well, I'm not voting on that one. This one is expected to close that by a million votes. But when you spend $50 million on the campaign, it suddenly becomes above you know, the radar, and people start to see and pay attention to what is this race about. So you could close that number considerably, given the fact that it's going to demand so much a sort of attention span of the voters. But most of this money is coming from these outside independent expenditure committees. I mean, what do you think's at stake here? People don't spend that kind of money if they don't feel that it's important to spend it. it it's kind of ironic because the power of the superintendent of public instruction anymore has dwarfed significantly after a court case some years ago, Honig versus State Board of Education, that that basically puts most of the power regarding education policy really into the hands of the State Board of Education and the governor, not the superintendent. So it really is a great question. Why all this money being spent? What are the stakes? And it really comes down to what some have characterized as a proxy war between the California Teachers Association and their union allies and the charter school movement led by the Charter School Association, an entity called EdVoice, which has become 
very much uh, pro-charter and supported the charter school movement. Those are the two forces, and they see in the two candidates that are up on the ballot as representing one camp or the other. So is it all about the so-called bully pulpit? Who gets that megaphone, whether it's Tony Thurman, who's been supported by unions and Marshall Tuck by wealthy charter backers, or or is it more? You know, is it sort of worry on their part about protecting their status quo for charter schools they don't want to change, or from a perspective of the CTA, sort of a loss of their political power that Marshall Tuck may represent a threat to him, or is there something more here? No, it, it is all of those things, and probably most notably, it is the issue of who's going to own the microphone, who's going to who is going to take control of the podium, if you will. Now, the superintendent of public instruction, ironically, doesn't really have decision-making authority over charter schools almost at all. They recommend on appeals that come to the state level on charters that have you know, come up from lower-level decisions against charters. They'll make recommendations, but they don't make the decision. That's the governor and the state board of education who weigh heavily on those kinds of decisions. So then the opposite is true with regard to the Teachers Association. The Teachers Association doesn't want somebody owning the podium that might be critical of their work and the work of organized labor every day. At least this is, I think, some of the perception. Although I don't know that Marshall Tuck would be that kind of state superintendent. But he did run a campaign four years ago that many people thought was sort of a referendum on CTA. At least CTA acted as if that was occurring. So I think that's the mix here, is that it is these powerful, very powerful political interests saying they want to elect somebody that is certainly looks at education issues more through their lens. We're talking with Kevin Gordon, who is founding partner of Capital Advisors based in Sacramento. But as you point out that, for example, Marshall Tuck has said he's in favor of expansion of charter schools. He actually has no power over expanding charter schools. Similarly, Tony Thurman says he wants to put a pause on charter school expansion. He has no power to impose that kind of pause. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. It is. It's funny. We've been listening to some of the stump speeches and you know, you'll look at a colleague who will be in the room and say, um, they don't actually have the power unilaterally to do that. But, you know, there are going to be legislators, and there are legislators, who share those views in the legislature who would immediately sponsor legislation. They would carry it with the sponsorship, probably, of the state superintendent. So there are ways sort of around it. But we have heard comments like, I'm going to stop this, or I'm going to make this happen, or whatever. It does point to the fact that I think even the candidates have a little larger view of what the powers really are of the state superintendency. And it, it just it is very limited. And one of the things you have to be careful of in, in those positions is picking fights with whoever ends up being governor or picking fights with the legislature is that you've got to not be a bridge burner if you're going to be in that position. And when the stakes are so high as they are and really somewhat polarized on these major issues, it shows kind of a, a road to what's to come depending on whoever gets elected. Well, we've mentioned these two particular issues, charter schools and the power of CTA, but 
important as they may be, would either Tuck or Thurman really veer that far from the mainstream as, you know, as their sort of fear-mongering ads would imply? Uh, don't they have a lot of common areas of agreement? They do. And in fact, one of the things I'm really optimistic about is that we're going to have a very solid, a very capable state superintendent, regardless of the outcome of this race. Now, there are different kinds of dimensions to which each of these candidates bring to the office, to be sure. But both are very passionate. Both are very articulate. Both actually understand the way schools work. And what you have happening in the campaign is what happens a lot in these campaigns where there are big political players weighing in with their money is the campaign gets painted in extremes. So both candidates are being characterized in ways that don't really reflect who they are. And that happens. I mean, I've seen the sort of extreme ads on both sides. And it's interesting to note that the most extreme ads, in fact, almost all the exaggeration of these candidates are being perpetuated by independent expenditure committees, committees that neither the candidates actually really control. Yeah, just in the reporting that we just did, between the two of them, they've raised about $8 million, and the other 42 comes from the independent expenditure. That spending dwarfs what they've raised. Yeah, it just it really underscores the problem. And the thing that's so stunning is that all of that money comes really clearly from these two camps— the teachers' unions and organized labor, and the charter school community. It's not like there's, you know, even a half a dozen different interests in each group. It's really clear where the battle lines are drawn. Well, we've been uh, talking with Kevin Gordon, who is a partner of Capital Advisors, a prominent school consulting firm based in Sacramento. Kevin, uh, thanks for talking with us today, and I guess uh, on Tuesday we'll have answers to a lot of the issues we've been talking about today. Thanks to both of you. I really appreciate being part of the program. You know, John, I'm sure you have seen, and many of those of you listening right now have seen a lot of these ads. You're getting the mailers in the mail from both of the campaigns or from the independent committees. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of this material generates more heat than light. Absolutely true. Been a lot of accusations and overstatements even some cases outright misrepresentations of what each has said. One good point Kevin Gordon brought up is that both Tony Thurman and Marshall Tuck have made bold statements about how they plan to reform California education, but they really don't have the power to do so. That's right, and there's actually an interesting story behind that. For those of you who've been in California for 50 years or so, you will remember that in the 1960s, there was a state superintendent of public instruction named Max Rafferty, who was really probably the best-known political figure in California nationally, other than Ronald Reagan, who also was overlapped with Max Rafferty for at least one of his three terms in office. Rafferty was an arch-conservative. He came to prominence. He was a principal. It was a teacher and a principal and then a school superintendent. He became known for a speech called the Passing of the Patriot, which was reproduced in Reader's Digest, another indication of how the media landscape has changed. Who remembers Reader's Digest? Yes. But I just have to read to you this little excerpt. This is, became a well-known quote from Max Rafferty. He blamed public schools for what he called youngsters growing up to become booted, sideburned, duck-tailed, unwashed, 
leather-jacketed slobs whose favorite sport is ravaging little girls and stomping polio victims to death. Ouch. And uh, Rafferty was basically, he was opposed to teacher strikes. He was against busing in order to integrate schools. Of course, against sex education. One of, the, one of his big issues was there was a dictionary of slang in many school libraries, and he said this was actually a handbook of sexual perversion because it contained various so-called obscenities in common usage at the time. That predates my arrival in California, but it's a very different state from the one that I arrived in, for sure, about 20 years ago. Well, what happened was, after three terms in office, Wilson Riles, who has actually worked as an assistant to Rafferty in the California Department of Education, African-American, ran against Rafferty and was given no chance of winning. That was before there were term limits. Wilson Riles actually won remarkably. Then he was in office for another three terms, 12 years, and his legacy is still evident in schools in California. He came up with this idea of school site councils, which consists of parents and teachers, and every school in California has to have one of those. He also was a big booster of early education and um, was also very much focused on closing the achievement gap. But uh, then what happened after 12 years, he also came up against a strong opponent, Bill Honig, who uh, was this young school superintendent. He was in his 40s at the time from Marin County. And uh, Bill Honig was pushing uh, more comprehensive academic standards. Well, that's the Bill Honig that Kevin referred to, right, in his discussion with us. When Bill Honig was elected to office, there were Republican governors. George Duke Majin and Pete Wilson, and Honey clashed with these Republican governors, and actually Pete Wilson took Bill Honig to court to strip him and the office of some of his powers, and handing over those powers to, or at least affirming that those powers should reside with the State Board of Education. And that's kind of what we're dealing with today. It's going to be interesting to see obviously, who gets elected on Tuesday, whether it's Marshall Tuck or Tony Thurmond. And now Jerry Brown served four terms as governor, and he was very influential on the education front, uh, major reforms on K-12 in terms of the local control funding formula, the community colleges. It's going to be interesting to see if Gavin Newsom will have the same kind of influence on education and whether the superintendent will have perhaps more influence over what Newsom does or doesn't do. I think the legislature, having seen that Jerry Brown is so influential, has backed off, and so now there may be a play by the legislature to reassert itself in education policy, and legislators may be looking to the superintendent for guidance. This is really a four-legged stool in terms of who shapes education policy. The governor, the most important got the State Board of Education appointed by the governor, you've got the legislature, and you've got the state superintendent of public education, and uh, the California Department of Education. So maybe it's a five-legged stool. Well, I was reading this week that 70% of states used to elect their state superintendent of public instruction, and it's down to 13, or about one out of four. Maybe they know something that we don't. Well, it's in the Constitution, so that's not going to change. And we're going to leave it there, John. We're going to let the voters have their say on Tuesday. 
that wraps it up for this week in California education. Thanks to our sponsor, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalatari. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. If you like what you hear, write us a review on iTunes. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.